was the school you attended close enough for those who were bused in to walk? No, not at all. See, there's a hidden bias right there that you weren't even aware of. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of hidden biases that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. That when you look back at, you realize. Yeah. But there was not any overt perceptions from that standpoint. But what's become more interesting, and I don't know why it hadn't hit me before, but I think now it has. I grew up privileged and we had a black housekeeper. So we had a, a woman who lived in the house and took care of us and helped us get to school and and fed us and took you know took care of everything you had a nanny i had a nanny we called her a housekeeper i know yeah but i had a nanny no i'm just being a little provocative i'm not trying to criticize we had a nanny but you know again it didn't i mean i learned a lot of soul music from listening to her (laughs) did you learn how to dance no uh that that was just not in the gene pool (laughs) sorry Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Hello, I'm Dr. Philip Nelson, and I want to welcome you to the Courageous Conversations. The death of George Floyd sparked a conversation between myself and Dr. Peter Weinstein on social and racial issues during the summer of 2020. We'd like to share that conversation with you. Today's podcast is entitled Peter's Nanny. Please enjoy. So why don't you tell me about your childhood? I will tell you about my childhood. So I grew up just outside of New York City on Long Island, Nassau North Shore, essentially where um, Great Gatsby took place. Mm. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote the book uh, in Great Neck, which is where I grew up. The community was a predominantly Jewish community. It was a staunchly democratic community, very liberal, very highly regarded school district. So I, I grew up in a, a community where at that time we would protest the Vietnam War. We'd sit in the parks and do our thing in terms of protesting. It was a definitely a segregated type community. I think out of the 300 high school graduating class, there were probably 30 minorities of all types. But it wasn't that there was, there was a perception of color, but there was not an issue with color. And um, from your perspective, from my perspective, uh, and I, I would believe quite the opposite from the 30 minorities that were there. Most of them were not the same economically as, as we were. So where did they live? They lived in the same community. And when you say the same community, they you don't mean neighborhood, you mean village or city? Exactly. You know, if you want to use the term projects, they lived in the projects. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And then the community was also right on the edge of Queens which was much more racially diverse. And so we actually had ballot initiatives to integrate the school district by busing in students from some of the lower income communities to afford them better educational opportunities. How did, how did that go? Uh, it kind of split the community, but it, it did pass. And um, it did help uh, bring in, but the numbers weren't 
significant. And I think it, it was more at the elementary school level than at the high school level. The high schools were working at capacity, but the elementary schools were not. And there were plenty of them. So as a kid, I heard my parents talking about it. What grade were you in when they started busing? Elementary school. So elementary. four, five, six grade, something like that. So you saw people bust into your class? Correct. You just thought they were part of the community. I wasn't knowledgeable enough then to understand that they were really being brought in 20 minute bus ride, 25, whatever it was from that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't care. You, no. you got school the way you got school. They got school the way they got school. Right. Right. Did you, did you take the bus to school or did you, or, or did you walk to school? I could walk um, or I could take the bus. The bus was free. So it all depends. Nice weather. I would walk, take the bike, ride the bike. Was the school you attended close enough for those who were bused in to walk? No, not at all. There's a hidden bias right there that you weren't even aware of. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of hidden biases that I wasn't aware of yeah. that when you look back at, you realize. Yeah. But there was not any overt perceptions from that standpoint. But what's become more interesting, and I don't know why it hadn't hit me before, but I think now it has. I grew up privileged and we had a black housekeeper. So yeah. we okay. had a, a woman who lived in the house and took care of us and helped us get to school and, and fed us and took, you know, took care of everything. You had a nanny. I had a nanny. We called her a housekeeper. I know. Yeah, but I had a nanny. No, I'm just being a little provocative. I'm not trying to criticize. I'm we had a nanny, but you know, again, it didn't, I mean, I learned a lot of soul music from listening to her. <laughs> Did you learn how to dance? No, uh, that, that was that's just not in the gene pool, <laughs> sorry. But you know, it, it didn't impact me because she was really part of the family and she was with us for 30 years. And uh, her husband, who was a Viet, he fought in Korea, World War II and Vietnam and did a number of tours to come and stay at the house with us. They also had a house in New Jersey that where their kids were growing up and being raised. She was at my wedding. She was at the bar mitzvahs. So she was really just part of the family. And again, her skin was black, but, but we, you know, my parents took really good care of her and she took really good care of us. In fact, she was with the, my parents even after all the kids moved out until my dad left the house in Great Neck. So she was part of the family. And, and I didn't, there was not a, not a racial issue that we felt or I felt from that standpoint. You know, the, the current issues and even issues in the past now are making me think about the, the white privilege. And, you know, I was part of a family that was subjugating to the new slavery, for lack of a better way to put it. So I got so many questions to ask you about perspective and, and timing and everything else. You said several times, you know, race wasn't an issue. Right. And it's clear you mean from your perspective. Correct. First of all, you're, so far, we're talking about you as a, as a boy. Correct. To, right. to 18. Uh, uh, well, actually, I, I was thinking about the first time you made that statement, you were still in elementary school. Correct. Correct. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I accept that. Fifth, sixth grade, race isn't a, uh, an issue for black people either, unless they're in horrific conditions. I mean, right. don't get me wrong, but I think all of us grow up colorblind until somebody tells us right. that, don't you see the difference in color? 
it's kind of like uh, we all grow up gender blind until women start filling out, you know? Yeah. And then we're like, why are you like that? You know, why did I come? I don't have those. And then later, it wasn't an issue because you didn't know what the issues were. Correct. Right? Yeah. They weren't an issue to you. Correct. And you could afford to accept people that weren't threatening you. So Correct. why would you think of race being an issue at all? You hadn't been taught that yet. Having a black student in, or a Hispanic student in your class didn't affect your learning. Right. Right? Nope. So let's talk about your nanny. Yes. Oh, oh, excuse me, your maid. Um, what is the earliest that you can remember when she became associated with uh, with your family? Probably kindergarten, first grade. So, you know, relatively early on. Relatively early on. Yeah. Okay. And you didn't go through two or three of them. You only had one. I think we. I went through two in the my entire life. Okay. And did you develop the same kind of relationship with both of them? The first one was relatively early on and probably was only there for one or two years. How did you feel when she left? I don't think that there was a long period of time without a, a nanny there. You know, I, I felt like I lost a friend or something like that because she was again, part of the family, but it was, I think I was too young to have much perspective at that point. Did she do your grocery shopping for you and everything? Yes. Did she take you to games or to the pool or? Absolutely. So she shuttled you around. What, what did your mother do? My mom was a teacher and when she retired from teaching and she was doing part-time teaching and then she uh, eventually opened up her own business. What did she teach? She taught biology. She must have the patience of Job or the discipline of Noah, one of the two. <laughs> I mean, I know growing up in New York that Harlem into the Bronx was where the blacks lived. Mm -hmm. And and is that the phrase that you all use? That's where the blacks live? Or at that time, did, do you remember them saying that's where Negroes live? Uh, it could have been Negroes. Um, it wasn't blacks, I don't think. I think it was Negroes. Um, or, or worse, but not, no, your, not, yeah. your family wouldn't have used that. But yeah, No, not my family. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, that wasn't some place to go. Because oh, really? It because it wasn't safe. That was the perception. Okay. The perception uh, yeah, that was your perception. That um, Harlem was the projects, the the you know the broken windows and, and everything else. Harlem was the black part or the Negro part or the colored part. We probably used colored back then too. It was probably colored. Yeah, yeah, it's probably colored. Um, part of of New York, and it was also Hispanic at that as is that as well. And Yankee Stadium, which was in the Bronx, was just north of that. And that was a uh, not-so-safe not neighborhood either. That was a mixed minority neighborhood around Yankee Stadium. So there was that anxiety that you heard about, but really, I never experienced it. Because when we went into the city, it would be go to Broadway or to go to dinner or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's just going back 
you know, to, through the through 18, because after I moved out of the house at 18 to go to Cornell, I was rarely back in New York. I spent one summer in New York between first and second year at Cornell, and I was working three jobs. And then um, after that, it was uh, pretty much being away from New York, except to go back and visit. Mm -hmm. So in, in many ways, I grew up white privileged. And but n again, I don't now I'm, I'm feeling awfully guilty as I sit here and realizing <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't be, but realizing that I was in many ways perpetuating uh, a syndrome of the 60s and 70s of, of white families employing black um, people. Mm -hmm. it was the transition, it was the northern form of slavery in many ways. Well, if you consider employment slavery, okay, but. Yeah, I think what bothers me in many ways now is I felt maybe I should have done more then, and how can I do more now? There's this a, a feeling of discomfort, and it bothered me during Rodney King. What bothered you during Rodney King? How can anybody do that to one another? Do and what? I'm sorry. Are you saying how do people treat people like Rodney King was treated or how do people treat people the way that was exhibited during the riots after? Whether Rodney King was black or white, what uh -huh. the cops did shouldn't be done to another human being. Okay. Okay. When the riots came about, what was going on when they pulled Rodney Denny out of the, the truck for doing nothing. Right. You know, except to exact some form of revenge or whatever the case may be. It's not how you solve problems, okay? No, it's not. And to watch them burn their own community also <laughs> didn't make any sense to me either, and retrospectively, probably didn't to them either, but. Well, it, prospectively, it didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, especially the ones who own those homes and businesses. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, the Korean community was an instigation at, at that point in time as well. So I just, I had never understood the need for violence. Again, it started with the Vietnam War. And I think in, in, in elementary school or high school, we read Gandhi's uh, biography of Gandhi. And it was like, now that's what I mean. Passive protesting. So Dr. King was definitely one of your champions. Absolutely. His I Have a Dream speech we should be memorizing that. Not just because of the, the desire to get past the racism, but just the fact that every individual should have a dream to be better tomorrow than they are today. Okay. I remember trying to memorize that speech. And? Um, I have a dream that one day, uh, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will get together at the table of brotherhood or something like that. That to me is sufficient. And that, that's the message, you know, and Henry David Thoreau, uh, the only obligation that I have a right to assume is to do what that which I think is right. And probably why I advocate as much for servant leadership, because that as a leader supports respect for the people that you work with. Mm -hmm. Not that work for you, but work with you.
So let's go. Yeah, let's get back to this idea of working for you. <laughs> Tell me more about how you feel that you might have supplanted the slave master by employing black people. It's a retrospective thing because back then it didn't dawn on me in any way, shape or form that it was the wrong thing. And, and maybe it wasn't the wrong thing. So what particular time of your life are we talking about right now? Right now. Right now. Right now. How many black people you got working for you right now? I have no black people working for me right now. Of course, I only have three people working for me. Okay. So when did you have black people working for you? Uh, in practice. Uh, so that's what I'm saying. What part of, so what part of your life was that? Uh, when I was a hospital owner for about 15 years. Okay. We had, uh, I mean, it, it, again, practice was in South Orange County. We had a very small black population in South Orange County. But I think in 15 years, we employed uh, two black people. Okay. Why only two black people? Because those were the only two who applied, honestly. <laughs> so the two that applied, you did hire? Absolutely. And did they get equal pay with the other animal assistants? Absolutely. And uh, why do you think the one that was still there lasted so long? Um, because they were, they did a good job. I mean, people liked them. And why did the one that left leave? I think just they realized that cleaning cages wasn't what they wanted to do their entire life. Okay. Do you think the one that's still there had other opportunities? They may have. I, again, I left 19 years ago. So it's been a while. I know that they were there for a while after I left. And then I think they may have moved on to another job within the profession thereafter. But I don't know what the eventual outcome was. The person that stood date with you while you were there, was he educated? Yes, military. Military? Yeah. Wow. Was there room for growth? Everybody could grow in any way, shape, or form. We helped people go to tech school and vet school. We gave them plenty of continuing education if they wanted it. And you provided him that opportunity? Absolutely. So you hired the two black people that darkened your door, no pun intended. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and you paid them as well as you could. Yep. Paid them equally to everybody else. Yep. You believe that you provided them the same opportunity as everybody else within the business. It, it was a small business. Yes. So why do you feel guilty? Um, Just about those two. Those two don't bother me as much. Okay. It, it goes back, I think the guilt goes back to the maid, the housekeeper, the nanny, and retrospectively uh, looking at that as, as um, not understanding then what I know now. Okay. But why is there guilt when you were five years old and you didn't pay the nanny? Right. It, you didn't set the schedule. No. You were actually the, the reason she was getting paid. Yep. I don't know. Uh -huh. that's, that's, this goes back to the original premise of some of our conversations. Right. I don't know. I'm playing uh, unlicensed psychiatry here. Yeah. Well, thank you. you. Know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick it apart because part of the courageous conversation yeah. is to unravel the useless feelings. Oh, yes. That is definitely where I'm sitting right now. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, some of these feelings don't help us. 
they only set us up for misinterpretation. Some of the feelings you, you are having, you're going to have to face logically and realize I had no control. Yeah. And I shouldn't be embarrassed or guilty. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, if um, Henry uh, Louis Gates Jr. Uh, did your family tree and you found out that one of your ancestors owned a slave, that's just interesting history. Right. There were some black slave owners, too. If I found out that's, that that happened, that's just interesting history. I don't know if I'll be embarrassed for, by it or if I'll tell anybody else, you know, but I didn't do it. And it might explain some of the lessons I learned from my parents. It might put some of those things in, in perspective. And it might cause me to challenge some of the things I accepted once I knew it. But that's different from adopting the responsibility of, of something you had no control over. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's a lot of, of the, the case is, is you did a very good job of psychoanalysis there. Um, there's nothing I could have done. Right. 50 years ago. There's nothing that I've done in the last 50 years either. Yes. And, and so... I think where I'm sitting right now is feeling guilty for something I had no control over, feeling embarrassed for not having done more in times when maybe I had control and reaching a point in time in my life that I feel a, a, a desire to be more influential in the outcomes that I have, the ability to create. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.